Hello, and welcome to the Albuquerque Three Angels SDA Church Sabbath School Podcast, presented from the Three Angels Studio right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this week's lesson is titled, Esther and Mordecai. Now, this week's lesson is going to be very interesting because it's going to be directly focused on the story of Esther and Mordecai and how it relates to God's mission. So, before we get into it, let's go ahead and bow our heads and say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you for giving us this day, for giving us this opportunity to come into your house, to to learn more about your mission and to continue our study into what that mission is, Lord. And we thank you for this opportunity. We ask that you be with us and guide us as we go through this lesson, that your Holy Spirit be here with us today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at the opening part of this lesson, and let's go ahead and take a look at the memory text first, actually. (laughs) Then the memory text says, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And this is found in Isaiah 49, verse 6. Now, one of the most inspiring accounts of cross-cultural ministry in the Bible can be found in the book of Esther. A great deal has been written over the millennia about this book, and to this day, many Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, which is based on Esther 9, 26-31. Now, Esther and Mordecai, her cousin, were Jews living in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. For whatever reason, unlike other Jews who had returned to Judah, they, along with others, remained in the land of their captivity. Then, through a series of providences, Esther becomes queen. The king loved Esther more than all of the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And this is in Esther 2.17. It was in this role that Esther, even if somewhat reluctantly, was able to play a major role or a major part in biblical history. In its own unique way, the story shows how God's people, even in foreign environments, can witness for truth. Whatever your time allows, read or skim through the book of Esther for this week's study. Now, this week's study is going to end on December 23rd just a couple days before Christmas. But it's such a interesting story. Um, trying to understand how, how a Jewish woman became queen in a country that she was not really from. Her people weren't from this, uh, from Susa. They were basically captives for a while, under the Persian Empire. Now, this is what's really interesting about this story is how she gets to to this position and what she does while in this position. Now, when we look at Sunday's lesson, you know, captive in a foreign culture, it it kind of gives us an idea of what was going on. And it says in the beginning, it says it may be difficult for us today to comprehend what the Jews faced first under the Babylonians and then the Persians. 
Now, it seems like throughout this entire process, the, the Jewish nation was constantly having issues with these these nations that came in and were really warring with other people. They were out there taking over. And we see this all the way throughout history that, you know, God's people were facing so many different uh, confrontations and issues that it was a struggle for them. It was something that they were trying to, to get through. Now, when we look at this and we look at how this plays along with God's mission, we need to look at this and try to understand that when we go out and we perform this work that God has set for us, a lot of times it's going to be in areas that we are not familiar with. Now, you've heard of mission work where people go to other nations, they go to other countries that um, may not necessarily know who God is. They may have some understanding, but the point in people going to these places to mission is really to share this information, to share God's love, to share the word of God with, with these people. Now, you're leaving the comfort comfort of your own environment to go into a place that you are not familiar with. Now, what we're seeing here, though, is Mordecai and Esther had decided they were going to remain in this country. You know, this is where they were captive. This is where they were brought to their people. And they decided during this time they were going to stay. Now, there's a couple other reasons why they stayed. And we're going to find out more throughout this lesson besides Esther becoming queen. Now, there is some other stuff that does happen. Some other information we do need to gather in this in order to fully understand it. Now, there, the reason we bring up the idea of going to a place that's unfamiliar or may not be predominantly of your faith. This is something that as seven day Adventists, we know that there is no country in this world that is a hundred percent, a seventh day Adventist country or nation. Now there is a understanding that the United States is a Christian nation on the most part, but we do have other religious faiths that live here. We're a melting pot. We are a, a nation that has so many different faiths and belief structures that it's basically impossible for this nation to come be completely a single faith nation. Now we see across the world that there are other nations that are very, very close to that, to being a single, uh, a single faith nation. Now we know there's a lot in the middle East that they follow Islam. 
majority of the population will probably be Islamic. We know there's countries where it's Hindu. We know of Buddhism. We know of the various uh, Native American faiths and traditions that are here in the United States. So us trying to understand what it means to go into these places and see these other faiths, these other practices, and then still hold on our own and introduce our own to others and to share that word that we know of God is difficult. It's tough. I want to read this right here. It says, on one level, think how easy that should have made it to be faithful to God. If we were in a nation that was enshrined in the Seventh-day Adventist values, it would be extremely easy for us to share the word of God because there's an understanding, there's a basis, there is a structure that is underneath that, that is already there, that makes it a little bit more easier for us to share that information that we have of God and to be able to share that that faith with others. You know, especially for us who do, in fact, keep the Sabbath day, that we try our best. And I know it's difficult for a lot of people, especially in the world today, to to not fall victim to distraction. But we are blessed to have this wonderful seventh day, our Sabbath, to be able to rest and to commune and to to be with God, to share in God's glory, to share in just having God's Holy Spirit with us. Now, we do know by revelation that that's going to change, that there is going to be the Sunday law. We we know it's coming. We can see the groundwork is there, that there is a push for this unification of of Sunday worship. We see it right now, especially in the Catholic Church, that they are pushing this Sunday worship here in the States. And it's it may not be directly said that it's going to be that at this time, but we do see the Catholic Church trying to do a unification, trying to bring all of these other factions of Christianity, uh, Protestant, um, Baptist, uh, Latter-day Saints. We're trying they're trying to get all these underneath and shared in this common belief that Sunday is the day of rest. But for those who understand and hold true to the word of God, to the scripture, we know the the seventh day, the Sabbath never changed. The Sabbath is still Saturday. Well, with that all being said, let's look at Esther and Mordecai. They are in a Persian nation that does not share the same faith of, of the Jewish people. They don't practice the same things. They don't understand the scripture that Esther and Mordecai do. So... Imagine being in that situation where you have to deal with that. 
Now, it says no matter who we are or where we live, we are immersed in an environment that to some degree, either by laws themselves or by the culture or both, can be greatly challenging to our faith and our witness. Now, we see the struggle that is out there. It's tough. It is not an easy thing to do what is required. It does require us to put some effort into it. It requires us to to put the, the work in, to get past our own our own issues and to do this work. Now, again, we have to think about the time frame where this was taking place. And we're reading in a foreign court. It says, eventually after the fall of Babylon and the rise of Medo-Persia, many of the Jews returned to their ancestral lands, but not all returned. Some remained where they had been living for a generation or more. Basically, your parents were brought there. You are the next generation that was either born there or you were raised there. Now, this will give us a little bit of context for the story of Esther, as I just mentioned. And it says, In those days, when King Aceras sat on a throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. Here is where the biblical narrative unfolds, the Persian Empire under this king. And it starts off talking about Queen Vashti. You know, she fell out of favor with the king. The king did not look at her the same way. The king was quite literally looking for a new wife. He was looking for someone new to 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 meet his needs, to to meet whatever requirements he had that Vashti was not meeting. Could be, you know, it, it it's just one of those things it's like when you think about Medo-Persia, and you think about these cultures, it was very, very easy for them, especially if you're the king, to get rid of your wife if you just were not happy with them. If there was some kind of issue that something came up that you just did not like, you had the ability to completely get rid of that marriage. And this is what happened. She fell out of favor with the king. Which meant that, yes, she was still married to the king, but he was looking for a replacement. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting. This is where we find out a little bit more information of what's going on here. Of what occurred to bring Esther into a position to mission. Now, we're going to see as we're going deeper into into the book of Esther exactly how she got in favor with the king and how she became queen Esther. Now, it says here it gives a little bit of background about Mordecai. It says Mordecai was a royal officer 
and he was sitting at the gate of the palace and was residing in the city of Shushan with his adopted daughter or cousin, Esther. Because of their position and living where they did, they were immersed in the Persian culture. This, according to what we're reading here, is probably part of the reason Esther was chosen to be presented to the king. She was already living in the city. She was already living in this area. She was already part and pulled in to the Persian culture, but she was Jewish. So she was still holding on to her Jewish faith, but she was experiencing the environment around her. She was living within this environment that was greatly different than what her faith and her understanding of her faith was saying. So let's take a look at Esther chapter 2, verse 8. And it says, When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Or Hegai. Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. Now, here it's talking about an area or part of the palace that all of these women were brought into so that the king can take a look at them, maybe talk to them, kind of get an understanding of who these women were, and to be able to select who he believes was the best fit for what he was looking for. Now, as we're looking at this, This has got to be a tough situation for Esther because more than likely all of the women that were selected or brought forward were probably all Persian women. And she was not a Persian woman. She was a Jewish woman. So she was in a position that was probably quite tough for her. That was probably something that she was not not very used to kind of being put in the spotlight like this, especially with who she was. Now, let's take a look at 2 verse 10. And it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Her her keeper or protector or uncle or whoever... The relationship that they had doesn't really matter. But the fact that Mordecai was telling her, don't say anything. This is an opportunity for you to get into a position that is going to help you and possibly help the people. Now, when we look at verse 20, it says, but Esther had kept secret her family and background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up now when we take a look at who Mordecai is Mordecai was in a position kind of power 
kind of an important position. But then we have Esther here, who is of Jewish descent, is a Jewish woman. Her nationality, you know, would technically keep her from getting to where she needs to be, where she can actually have some influence and probably have some ability to enact some changes that could be utilized by the people or by by her people. And it says, though the text does not say precisely why, it's not hard to guess, right? As aliens in a foreign country and a foreign culture and religion, it could be hostile. And that was the other thing. You know, if they found out that she was Jewish or that she was not Persian, it could have caused a lot of issues for her, but also for Mordecai. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I want us to take a look at Esther chapter 3. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 15. And it says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman's son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Rightfully so. He was angry because he was in a position that required anybody that was around to bow to him and to pay him honor. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This is quite possibly the reason why Mordecai told Esther not to say anything. He was probably protecting her life. Now, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the ninth, or the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, we was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on with the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Now this was something that the Jewish people did. They did segregate themselves from others, not to be influenced by the others' cultures, the others' practices, the others' uh, way of, you know, worshiping. Because a lot of these other cultures had multiple gods, had multiple things that went against the scripture that the Jews had. It went against God's laws, so they separated themselves. 
And it says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes that they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in a script of each province and in the language of each people of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Basically, the king gave Haman his signet ring, and said, look, here's here's the ultimate stamp of approval. So anything that was coming from the king and was going out to the people had to be signed and sealed. So this is what the ring was used for. Basically, they'd drop ink on or some uh, wax, the ring would be pressed on it, and that was a royal seal. That was the king's approval or the king's order or the king's demand and it was coming directly from the king. Now it says in verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Now then you're starting to see why a lot of the Jewish people left the Persian area of Susa and went back to their homeland. It was one because it was a lot safer to go back to where you were familiar with than to be in a foreign place. Young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So not only were the commands to kill all of the Jews, both men, women, old people, children, but also to take and collect everything they owned whether it was gold silver bronze weapons you know furniture whatever all of that would go back to the kingdom so a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day the couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Now, this sounds like some other incident that we all know of. Something Daniel had faced himself. Now, if you remember... There was an issue that Daniel faced because some people that claimed to be wise men or uh, I'm trying to think of the best word of what they were. The king's uh, 
informants or uh, intelligence people, whatever you want to call them, came up with a plan to capture Daniel, right? Because they didn't like the fact that Daniel was treated and respected so much more by the king than they were. So they devised a plan in order to get Daniel killed, or at least imprisoned. Now, kind of the same thing is happening here. Haman was disrespected by Mordecai, so instead of just having the issue dealt with Mordecai, Haman decided that it was probably better just to get rid of all of the Jewish people. Now, this was what's really interesting about this whole situation now. Now that we're finally getting an idea of what's going on here, why it was so important for Mordecai to ensure that Esther did not reveal who she was during the process. Now, it says here in Esther Chapter 3, verse 3, says, When the king's servants who are within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? They're basically asking, Why are you doing this? This is not going to be good. You know, you were told by the king that you have to pay respect to this man. Why are you not doing it? And that's when he said, Because I'm a Jew. He said, I will only bow to my God. I will not bow to another man. I will not bow to somebody here on earth that does not come close to my God. This was where we see Mordecai witness to others. He stood out. He made sure that it was understood why he he was doing what he was doing. Now, in a situation like this, where now, because you are standing against this order, your entire people are now going to be punished by this. But there is something that comes from this, something that is amazing. And this tells you truly that there is nothing that occurs on this world that God has not already had a plan for. That God did not already have something in the works to to either ensure that a lesson was learned or that a people were changed or something was different. God always is a hundred steps ahead of where we are. We think we know everything that we know of what's going to happen next, but God has already seen the choices, the actions, and the results. Now, here is where it gets even more interesting in this story of Mordecai and Esther, and why this story is so important for us to know when we are looking at mission work in places that are not conducive with our faith, with our beliefs. 
Now, let's take a look at Esther 4, 1 through 14. And it says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter. The king had standards in place to ensure that only people that were well-dressed, people that were in some kind of status or some kind of position, got past that gate. So a common person, a normal person living in this kingdom, would not get that close to the king. That's what that was for. And it says, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, wailing, many lands, sackcloth, and ashes. They were humbling themselves. They were putting themselves at the mercy of God. They were asking God, saying, God, please help us. We are scared for our lives. We don't know what to do. We are in a hostile environment. We need your protection. Now, where does this protection come from? Well, as we continue to read, we're going to get a better idea of what that was. It says, in starting in 4, verse 4, When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was such in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. When Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to a tender and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Esther still had no idea of what was going on. This edict came from the king, but she was not aware of what that edict was. She was just hearing there's something going on with Mordecai, a family member. She was trying to get some answers. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him, everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. That, just the fact that, you know, Haman was willing to pay so much to eradicate a, an entire people, that is crazy to me. But it also says, he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now, here's the interesting thing. The queen can only meet with the king if he summons for her. And it says here, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. So here she's acknowledging the fact that what she's about to do is going to be very risky. There is a potential that she could lose her life. But she sees the importance of what she has to do because her people are 
threatened. There is imminent danger for her people. And it says when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. So this is this is texting. This is emailing back and forth, but it's with somebody. It says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Basically telling her, look, you need to understand that when the king finds out that you are a Jew, his law, his edict has to be followed and you will be put to death. You need to be careful. You need to make sure this is what you want to do. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family, father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Mordecai is telling her, look, there's a possibility that a solution may come from somewhere, that there may be an opportunity for us to find another way to be delivered from this edict. You do not have to put yourself in that position. And he goes, but you, but you need to. Because either way, if you don't go and say something now and the king finds out, you're going to die. This is just, the story of this is so interesting because here we are seeing someone who is truly standing up for their faith, that is truly standing behind the power of God and is doing what he knows he needs to do. But at the same time, he's conflicted. Because on one side, he has Esther, a family member, who's in a position to probably be able to enact change. But the outcome of death is great. There is a great chance that she could die either by the king finding out that she's Jewish or because she went to the king and the king did not extend his golden scepter. It, for her, this is such a a dangerous situation to be. And Mordecai is saying, look, I, I understand if you don't want to do this, but the outcome is going to be the same no matter what. So either rip off the Band-Aid and do it, or just wait for death to come to you. That's what he was basically telling her. So it continues to says, I will go to the king. Even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. He's like, it is what it is. I know I need to do this. I know I need to approach him and tell him who I am, who my people are, and that he is punishing my people, his queen's people. So she said, look, I'm going to fast and tell everyone else to fast and to pray for the next three days. She's like, on the third day, she's like, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to go talk to the king. I'm going to put my voice forward and see if the king does anything. And pray that the king extends that scepter to me and accepts what I'm saying and makes changes occur. And it says on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting there on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court. He was pleased with her 
and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So right there, we see a miracle already happen. The king saw her and was pleased. He was happy to see her. He was so glad that she was there. And now this is rare. This instance where you can walk into the king's court and the king allows you to approach to touch the tip of the golden scepter. That, from what I'm understanding and the way Mordecai was telling her, this is not something that happens. You go into that court unannounced, you know, uninvited. I'm pretty sure a lot of people were killed. This probably was the most dangerous thing that Esther could do. Now, he did extend it to her. He did invite her to the throne to touch that scepter. And a miracle happened in Purim. A miracle of Purim. It says, commentators for millennia have noticed that God's name does not appear in the book of Esther. This is the only biblical book where such a phenomenon occurs. However, the Jews were able to recognize God's actions in the great deliverance made for them, and this book was selected by God's people to be included in the canon of the Bible. Are we able to discover the presence of God's of God beneath the surface of our daily life? God's action can take the appearance of normal natural events, and if we don't carefully pay attention to them, we will not notice God's presence. And this is what it happened here. God had to be there in this situation to, to soften the king's heart when he saw Esther to invite her over and to be pleased. God had to be there hearing his people asking for help, asking for relief, asking you know, for some kind of miracle to occur. And Esther was in the right position at the right time at the right moment to, to be there where God can work through her. And it says here in Esther 8, 17, it says many people of other nationalities became Jews because of what we see here. It says, in every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating, and many people of the other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. What occurred here was that the king only ex further extended what the law was. He didn't reverse the law. He didn't change the law. But what he did, because of Esther coming forward and putting this out there and putting her faith in God that God would deliver her through this, the king made a new law. He said, okay, as king, 
it's hard and difficult for me to completely remove a law that I had, but I can add to it. And he said, I will allow the Jews to defend themselves. Now, this was something that was crazy for the people at the time. Because if there was an edict that came out and said, all people of this one nationality must be destroyed, that's it. Every, all of that kingdom's military, people, whatever, they would go destroy that nationality. They would just destroy those people. But here, the crazy part is that he made a new law that said the Jews can take up arms to defend themselves. They can do whatever they need to do to defend their own lives. And obviously this is what happened. Many Persians saw that the Jews were victorious in defending themselves. They saw that God was on their side. And because God was on their side, it converted people. Being in a situation that looks like there is no hope, that there is no good outcome, that everything is leading just to, to one potential, and then to sit there and just put your faith and your trust that God will deliver you out of that situation. That is beautiful. It is a testament to his promise of delivering those that have faith in him. We look at this story and we see this as an opportunity for us as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, to go out there and to tell others who we are and say, look, there is a solution to this. There is someone there that is wanting to reach out to you, that wants to help you, that wants to bring you into his fold, to, to care for you, to watch over you. You can be like us, be victorious against sin because our Savior was victorious against sin. That, that is such a powerful thing. And when we allow God to work through us and we recognize that there are moments in our lives that God has stepped in, that God has done something to, to get us out of danger or to put us on the right path or to, to give us an opportunity to do something different. When we look at our lives and we recognize that and we call that out, we can use those moments to witness to others. This is what's important about mission work, is that when you are doing mission work, you're not just reading a step-by-step -step guide going, step one, hello, step two, ah-da-da-da-da. No. When you are doing mission work, people want to see, they just don't want to hear who God is. But they want to know how God has affected you. What has God done for you? How has God gotten you where you are today? 
those personal testimonies, those those moments where your backup was against was up against the wall, that you were facing imminent doom, and then God steps in and delivers you from that, and you you are safe and protected. Now it doesn't have to be necessarily something that's extremely crazy, something that is so outlandish that you know it's like a situation like this where your entire people, your nationality is facing death. It's little things that occur in your life that are moments for you to mission to others through your testimonies. Moments where when you think back and you go, I don't know what it was, but I heard a voice say, don't go down that alley. That's God. Or you, or you get that uneasy feeling when you're about to do something and then you decide maybe I shouldn't do it. Or when you're in a situation where you're really against doing something, but then at the last moment you're like, you know what? I'm going to do it. And it turns out great. And that is God in those moments acting upon you to, to lead you to where you need to be. When you share moments like that with others through mission work, through discussion, through scripture, through, through your own personal events, it resonates so much more. People grasp onto that. And it is one of those things that I truly, truly do think is very important for those that are in mission work. Yes, getting scripture out there, getting the word of God out there is crucial. It is vital that we do that. But when we share testimony, we give God an opportunity to reach into the hearts of others to allow them to see the work that he has done on you. And that has such a big influence on others. That can change somebody from walking down the wrong path, looking at you going, okay, God has done something for you. He has changed you. He has reached you. I want that in my life. I want that moment. I want God reaching to me and bringing me closer to him. It's amazing when you look at such wonderful stories in scripture that talk about these moments where someone was going down a wrong path and God stepped in and changed that path or has stepped in because your faith in him is so strong that he delivers you out of these dangerous situations. You know, Daniel is such a testament to that. The book of Daniel talks so much about so many things that we see as, as moments that God stepped in and has done something. We look at some of the, the situations Daniel was in, such as, you know, being placed in a lion's den. His faith and resolve was so strong in God that God would deliver him from this, that it had impact on the king. These are things that 
we need to be sharing when we do mission work, especially in places that may not be friendly to us. But if we put our faith and trust in God, he will deliver us. He will bring us forth and he, he'll do the hard work. We just have to allow him to do that. We just have to make the introduction and God will take over from there. Jesus says that when you lift me up, I will do what needs to be done. When we lift up Jesus and we put him first in our lives, our interactions, and we, we, we talk about the positive things he has done, the things, even sometimes the things that we think are bad. In those moments when we see that we have overcome bad things, that we've made it through, that we have survived those moments, it's because God is there delivering us, that Jesus is there holding us, protecting us, and delivering us to that out final outcome. That's what we need to be doing. But with that... Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this Sabbath School lesson. We look forward to, to having you join us for the final lesson, which is titled... The End of God's Mission. That is going to be a very beautiful lesson. I hope that you listen to it and you take part in it. If you have any questions or anything like that, please definitely reach out to us. Let us know how God has worked through you to reach others, how mission work has affected you. We are, we are so interested in hearing these stories. So if you want, please share those with us. We will read them. We'll share them in our podcast. And we look forward to, to being able to join together as one and have these lessons together. So with that, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a short prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to go over your Sabbath school lesson, to, to learn how you stepped in to help the people of Esther and Mordecai, how you were the one who changed the heart of a king to to reach out and to embrace his wife, Esther. Lord, we thank you for showing these, these beautiful lessons for us on the importance of having faith and trust in you, that you will deliver us from, from the, the things that may affect us in our lives, that you will bring us forward, that you will bring us to where we need to be and put us where we need to stand so that we can be a living testimony to the amazing and beautiful power of, of yours, Lord. Thank you. May your Holy Spirit wash upon those that are listening and be with them as they go throughout this week and prepare us for our final lesson for this quarter and to end this year on a high note, Lord. We thank you. And we ask for forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments about this week's lesson, please go to our podcast page on our website, threeangelssda.org slash podcast. That's the number three, angelssda.org slash podcast, and use the comments section. 
There, you can listen to any of the previous lessons as well as our other programs. Also, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Just search for ABQ Three Angels Podcast. Mm-hmm.